you are at Founders FAQ, answers to all the possible questions of a founder. You've got to learn how to listen to people. You've got to, you know, the best founders I know are ones that listen to tons of podcasts. They read lots of books. They're open to lots of new ideas. They're interested in, in, in lots of different things. And you can tell when you're asking people different questions about their business, you know, how much have they thought about things that are not the core product? How much have they thought about company culture, the values, the mission, the go-to-market, etc. So I think being coachable is about listening to other people, understanding what it is that they're telling you and, and, and synthesizing all of that feedback and, and coming up with decisions and then explaining your rationale back to the people who made those suggestions. Welcome to Founders of AQ. Today, my guest is Eamon Carey. He is the Managing Director at Techstars London, a partner at The Fund, an early-stage investor, advisor and board member for companies across US, Europe and Asia. He has invested in over 50 companies around the world and he also runs a regular deal flow email for 800-plus angel and VC investors around the world. Hi, welcome to Founders of AQ. Thanks very much. It's good to uh, good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. My, my first question is, how do you evaluate the startup and the founder at, at your first touch? Uh, what do you look for at the first meeting? Yeah, so so with Techstars, we, we've kind of used the, the mantra team, 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 market traction idea to kind of talk about how we assess companies. So, you know, we're looking for founders that have really strong founder market fit, that have a a clear understanding of the problem that they're trying to solve. You know, for me, kind of why someone started the business and, and, and who that person is, is frequently much more important than what they're actually building. So we want to see that, you know, there's a real passion for what they're doing. There's some unfair advantage that they have in the market or some understanding um, that they have that, that others don't in, in the market that, you know, they either have a, a team around them or that they have the ability to, to, to build a team around them. You know, we've invested in, in solo founders and in, in you know companies that, that only have one founder and no team at all, um, right the way through to companies that have multiple founders. So you know, make sure that they have the ability to build a team, the ability to communicate their ideas effectively. Um, for the accelerator programs that we run, we want people who are coachable. Um, if we're going to introduce them to a hundred mentors or advisors or, or, or partners, you know, they're going to get lots of advice, and maybe not all of it is going to be correct, but you have to be able to take at least some of it and, and take action on it. Uh, so I think that coachability is is really important. And then, you know, sometimes with some companies who are pre-launch, you know, those are the main factors. For companies that are maybe a little bit further along, who've, who've got, you know, maybe some revenue or some initial users growth, you know, there I'm looking for freely. So growth, engagement and, and intensity. Um, so how quickly are, are their user numbers growing? You know, how much, if they're building an app or a product, you know, or direct-to-consumer product, how often are people coming back and, and, and re-engage? And then intensity is kind of, you know, either for a direct to consumer product, it might be the love that, you know, the reviews that people are leaving or the, you know, the love that they feel for the product, you know, for, for consumer apps, it might be how much time are spending people spending in, in, in the product for, you know, for B2B apps, it might be the extent to which they're spreading, their usage is spreading across an organization. Uh, but I think those are some, you know, we're, we're typically investing in, you know, pre-seed companies. So, you don't have a huge amount of data points and ultimately what you're backing for the most part are the, the people behind the company um, and their ability to execute rather than necessarily the idea. Because again, maybe 20 or 30% of the companies doing a textiles program will do a, 
a small or a major pivot. So ultimately, it's 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 the people and and you know that that team that's the really important factor. And you mentioned the coachable founders. I think it's pretty important because your personal growth is pretty important while your as startup is scaling. So especially for the first time founders, what do you recommend to be coachable? I think you've, you've got to be open to hearing new ideas. I mean, of course, everyone who, who starts a company understands that company better than, than almost anyone that they'll, that they'll talk to. Um, but I think you have to be a, open about sharing your idea with people. You know, the biggest mistake I made as a founder um, who's kind of going, my idea is so amazing that if I tell anyone else, they'll steal my idea and go off and run and do it themselves. And, you know, the reality is everyone has those ideas and they're all very different. And most people already have something that they love working on. So you've got to share your idea. You've got to take feedback from people. You've got to kind of maybe take action with some of that feedback or explain if someone makes a suggestion that you do something and you, you decide not to do it, maybe go back and tell that person why you made that decision. Or if you did implement a suggestion they made and you saw a positive result, go back and let them know that it made a difference. I think ultimately you've got to, you know, as, as a founder, you've got two ears and one mouth and you've got to learn how to use them in, in that proportion. So you've got to learn how to listen to advice. You've got to learn how to listen to people You've got to, you know, the best founders I know are ones that listen to tons of podcasts. They read lots of books. They're open to lots of new ideas. They're interested in, in, in lots of different things. And you can tell when you're asking people different questions about their business, you know, how much have they thought about things that are not the core product? How much have they thought about company culture, the values, the mission, the go to market, et cetera. So I think being coachable is about listening to other people, understanding what it is that they're telling you and, 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 synthesizing all of that feedback and, and coming up with decisions and then explaining your rationale back to the people who made those suggestions. Great. And uh, on the fundraising side, sometimes founders are uh, confused when to raise around. They raise their uh, money, then four months later, they raise it, they raise it again, and it's kind of time-consuming. What do you think? Like, what's the right time to raise around? I think there's there's a couple of right times in in a business's life cycle. I think you know the what I, the advice that I tend to give to companies the, the pre-seed and, and idea stage or concept stage companies going through TechStars. You know my advice is always you do the program and then raise kind of five hundred thousand you know five hundred thousand pounds five hundred thousand dollars and then just put your head down. You'll still have a pretty small team that should give you eighteen to twenty four months worth of runway and just execute until you have a product and product market fit and you start to see you know, some real growth or real engagement or, you know, whether that be as a B2C app with, you know, users coming onto your platform and engagement and intensity increasing. If you're a B2B product, you're starting to see more sales and more revenue coming in. And once that starts happening, then you fundraise because you need the money. You know, you you, you know what you're going to do with it. So you, you get to product market fit or you get to a stage where you're growing um, at a very fast rate of pace and you go, okay, now I know I need to hire an enterprise sales team or, I need to bring in a bigger, you know, back-end team and, and more front-end people and, and a, you know, advertising sales team. And then you start to go, okay, well, in order to do that, I need a million dollars, I need two million, or I need five million dollars. And I think at that point you go out and, and fundraise. I think the mistake that a lot of companies make is they raise amounts of money that are slightly too small, so they don't give them enough they, themselves enough time to iterate. You know, the reason that investors say raise enough capital for eighteen to twenty-four months is. You know, when you when you close that round, you probably have kind of twelve months, ten or twelve months of, of execution before you need to go out and start thinking about your your next round of funding. And so you want to make sure that you're giving yourself enough room to you know wireframe, prototype, test, 
iterate, repeat, and, and, and go through that process a couple of times because not everything is going to work as well as, as you need it to. And if you follow that process, then you, you know, you should really only be raising money when you have, you know, the proof points that you need in terms of that, that growth or, you know, revenue growth or user growth or engagement growth. So, you know, you, you need the money to grow that even further. You need the money to, to scale the business. Um, or, you know, you, you've reached the end of, of one cycle of the business and you need to grow the team to, you know, build your technology. If you're building a machine learning company, maybe you don't have the same growth. If you're building an AI company, maybe your product isn't even released publicly yet, but, you know, that first round of funding gives you 12 months to experiment with, you know, data sets and algorithms and more. And then you raise a little bit more money to, to build out the team and, and, and improve the efficiency. So I think giving yourself enough breathing room with a raise and, and not just raising enough money for three or four or six months, because I, as an investor, view that as a much more risky investment than, you know, putting money into a company that's going to have a, a longer period of runway, uh, more opportunities to kind of run sprint cycles and experiment. And I think the other thing is, you know, avoiding, I see a lot of companies who, who, who raise more money than they really need. And so they will raise at, a, at an inflated valuation. And your risk there is, you know, within 12, 18, 24 months, you're going to have to justify that valuation. And so it's great if you do your you know, your seed round is 5 million on a 50 million pre, right? Like, yes, you're going to be on the front page of TechCrunch. Yes, everyone is going to send you emails saying congratulations. However, in 18 months time, someone is going to say, is this company worth $55 million? If not, then you're going to do a flat round. More likely, you're going to do a down round. You're going to suffer a lot of dilution versus being smart and taking maybe smaller amounts of, of, of money at the times that you need it and being a little bit more kind of frugal and, and sensible about things. So I think you've, you've got to kind of balance up, you know, how much time you as a CEO spend fundraising and how much time your team gets distracted by fundraising versus how much time you have to actually execute. And so for me, raising when you need to and, and getting your head down and executing when you don't is the key thing. And I know uh, you're supporting all founders in this process, but what's the biggest role of an accelerator in startup life? So I think it's 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 helping companies get to certain realizations and certain connections faster, right? So I would say for, you know, whether it's Techstars or 500 or YC or Flexix Labs or, you know, any of the other accelerators that are out there, you know, the, the biggest component that we offer people is 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 the network, you know? So in, in the case of Techstars, you know, the companies meet in the, the first month of the program, they meet about 100, you know, mentors and advisors. And these are kind of former founders or operators or people who've been kind of, involved in, you know, their subject matter experts in marketing or hiring or finance or legal. Um, so they get a lot of smart people to bounce ideas off and, and to stress test their business proposition. But also all of those people have a really big network as well. And so being able to kind of get instant connections into a, a much wider network of people is, is a huge part of it. You know, thinking about that network as it multiplies out in terms of investors, you know, we've now had close to 5,000 angels and VCs that have invested in companies across Techstars over the last, you know, 13 or 14 years. So there's a pretty substantial data set that we have of, of you know, being able to kind of tell companies, look, these are the right investors at the right time and the right people to have conversations with. You know, the fact that we've taken a company onto Techstars, you know, uh, shows those investors that they've been kind of vetted. You know, we've, we have a very low, like a, a you know, less than 1% acceptance rate for the companies that get onto Techstars. So there's kind of some validation there initially and then a massive network that they get access to. And hopefully, you know, we help them fast forward their access to that network. And then through all of the advice and guidance that we give them, we also try to get to a stage where they have kind of two or three years worth of 
experience and lessons and, and learnings from all of these kind of different people in our network that allow them to just be a couple of steps further ahead of the competition when it comes to actually executing or growing. And, and part of that has been able to, you know, as you get bigger and say, hey, I want to expand my business into the Japanese market, right? There's probably 25 or 30 tech stars companies that have already done that. So you can just go and talk to those CEOs and say, if you were to do this again, what would you, what would you do and what would you not do? And frequently, you know, learning the mistakes that people made is far more valuable than, than the advice that they can give you. Mm -hmm. And you have tons of exits on your portfolio companies in this process. And do you think is there exit mindset uh, from the day one or it all happens in the road? I think it, it depends, right? I think for, you know, I think every the really interesting one. So some investors really hate seeing companies put an exit slide in their pitch decks. Um, and I must admit, I'm, I'm, I'm one of them. I, I, I think, you know, my view is every company should be aware of where an exit might come from, you know, who, who some of the p potential acquirers might be. I think calling it out too early, you know, some investors will kind of go, oh, well, actually, are you trying to build a, a big long-term business here? Um, or, are you, you know, are you thinking about maybe a 10, 20, $30 million exit? Um, I think actually, you know, we, we probably should in Europe and, and, and probably more widely globally, we should celebrate the kind of 10, 20, 30, $50 million exits much more than we do. You know, they're not the ones that are going to return VC funds. Um, and I think a lot of founders don't understand how the VC economics work and, and, and how VC funds make their money and how VCs themselves make their money from carry. So I think, you know, a friend of mine, Matt Pennycard from Ada Ventures wrote a great post on Medium about how VCs make money. I think every founder should understand that. Um, I think founders should be open. You know, if you think about it, if you're, you know, first time founder, you build a product, you do maybe an accelerator and, and, and one round of, of um, funding. So, you know, the founding team still owns 70% of the business and you, you sell that company for, for $20 million. You know, that's a life-changing amount of money for, for, for almost everyone. Um, for accelerators, that's, that's, a, that's a great exit. For most angel investors, that'll be a great exit. So I think people need to be more conscious of exits as an opportunity. I also think more startups need to be conscious of the opportunity that they have to merge or acquire other businesses. You know, we see that happening much more often in, in the US where, you know, similar size companies or slightly larger companies will kind of um, swallow slightly smaller ones and integrate their features and their team. Um, so I think, you know, you need to be aware that, that an exit, like the, the most likely outcome for, for a company in terms of seeing a return is that, that it's a trade sale. They, they get bought by, by a competitor or by someone else in the market. You know, very few companies go to, to have massive kind of IPOs. So you've got to be aware of the fact that you're you're more than likely going to be if you're bought, it's going to be by um, another startup or another big company. So I think people need to be aware of it and aware of how the economics of of that work. I just maybe wouldn't call it out too early in the in the process. Mm -hmm. I get it. And you have also seen tons of pivots on your portfolio companies. What do you recommend for the founders? What's the right approach to make the pivot? What's the right time? So I think, you know, I mean, we see normally somewhere between kind of week three and, and week six or seven. So we, we run programs that are typically about 13 weeks long. So somewhere in that kind of week three to week seven is where we see the greatest number of pivots because companies have gone in, they've had these hundred conversations with mentors and follow-ups with many of them. You know, they've gotten feedback that maybe the idea is not quite right or that the go-to-market is too broad and, and therefore needs to be kind of a little bit more focused or you know, in some cases that actually the idea has just already been done or, you know, has never succeeded for a variety of reasons. 
So I think you need to be kind of open to pivoting quite, quite early. And I think a lot of it is going to be based on conversations. You know, I think every company should be doing tons and tons of, of customer development conversations. If, if, if you're not in an accelerator and you're not talking to mentors, you should be talking to your potential customers or, or, or your potential users. And so I think based on that feedback, you should be open to kind of amending your strategy pretty quickly. You know, I think the, um, the, the, the greatest advantage and the, the greatest thing that startups can generate is, is speed and, and momentum. You know, when you're a two or three or four person company, you can make decisions far faster than, than most of your competitors. And so sometimes, you know, if you see data coming back in that shows that people are just not engaging with the landing page that you've set up or, you know, that people are maybe downloading the app that you've built using it once and, and, and not coming back or, you know, that you're struggling to get traction within a business that you're selling into, you know, you need to kind of over, you know, a couple of weeks assess those data points coming in and go, okay, this isn't working. Like we need, we now need to go back to the drawing board. And for most companies, when they pivot, it's not a total pivot. You know, you're probably taking one aspect of the business or you're, you know, you're narrowing the, the go to market strategy or the market segment you're going after. Um, or you're kind of doing something that's, that's, that's a, a little variation on a theme. Um, I think for companies that kind of throw the entire company away and, and decide to, to kind of start from scratch. You know, again, I think the earlier that you do that, the better, because if, you know, if you've raised some money from investors, that's again, why you want to have 18 months worth, worth of runway. Because if you decide after three months, terrible idea, we're going to spend a, a month figuring out what the new idea is. And then another couple of months building it out. You want to have the, the freedom to do that. But I would say, again, it comes back to communication. Like you've got to talk to your, you know, other startups, friends, you know, mentors, advisors, various different people and, and, and get as much feedback from them as possible. But, you know, you've got to make decisions. Like ultimately, the best startups that I've ever worked with are the ones that make decisions really quickly and execute equally as quickly and, and aren't afraid to go, I was wrong. And, and therefore we need to, to scratch this and start again. Great. Yeah. And my, la- my last question is, how do you see the hubs like SF after the COVID? Do you think investment is so VCs will change like investing more in remote teams? What do you think about it? I think it's, it's all, it, it, it had started to change before, um, COVID. So, you know, if I look at historically in London, you know, most until probably two or maybe three years ago, you know, 95, maybe even 99% of the capital that was invested into pre-seed and seed rents in, in UK startups came from UK angels and, and UK VCs. You know, in the last two or three tech stars programs that I've, I've run, we have had investors from Japan invest in, in rounds. We've had investors from the East Coast invest in rounds. We've had investors from all across Europe invest in rounds. We've had investors from Africa invest in rounds. So I think capital as a whole is getting more mobile. Um, I think coronavirus and COVID has, has sped that process up. I think everyone now, you know, we've had seven months of making investment decisions entirely on, on, on Zoom. Um, so I think people are getting more comfortable with it. They're getting more comfortable with remote teams. They're seeing what remote teams have been achieving over the last couple of years and, and what they can achieve. And I think also investors are starting to look at, you know, what are some of the options that they have in terms of, you know, more favorable valuations. If you're investing in a, in a company in the Bay Area, you have to price in the fact that, you know, salaries are maybe three or four X higher than they would be if you're investing in a company in, you know, Phoenix, Arizona, or, you know, maybe even 10 times higher than if you're investing in a company in Kiev or, you know, in, 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 you know, Bulgaria or any of these other markets. So I think investors are going, actually, 
I mean, get better valuations and more favorable valuations and maybe slightly more ownership investing in um, in companies that are remote first and, and that are in slightly lower cost markets? You know, can we give companies more runway? I think all of those things definitely point to the fact that we will see more investment in remote first companies. I think we'll still, you know, you will still have a density of kind of, you know, sales and, and BD and um, executives in, in New York and LA and San Francisco and London and, and big cities. Because I think if you're still, you know, if you're a fintech company selling into a bank here, you know, those deals are going through at the moment, but they'll, they were going through a lot faster when people could sit in an office and build a relationship and kind of, you know, really um, collaborate on things in a way that I think the sales process hasn't quite evolved as quickly as the investment process um, to remote first. So I do think you'll still see clusters in, in some of the bigger cities, but I think you'll see, I mean, if I look at the 10 companies doing the Techstars program this year, you know, all of them are remote. You know, and, and, and many of them were remote even coming into the program when I had my first conversation with them. So, you know, to me, it's a it's a positive thing. It creates some challenges around, you know, the vision, the culture, the onboarding of people in a fully remote company is very difficult. But at the same time, some of the smartest people in the world and some of the, the, the you know, the, the startups that are going to be worth, you know, millions or, or billions of dollars over the next few years are now coming up with ideas to make this Zoom process and, and this remote working process more um, engaging and more scalable and, and more reactive. So I'm, I'm hugely optimistic about the future. Yeah, great. Ivo, these are all my questions. Thank you for coming to Founders of Ethia. Excellent. Thank you very much for having me. Delighted to be a part of it. By the way, Founders FAQ is in pre-order and it covers the answers to all the possible questions of a founder in a startup journey, whether revealing life-saving principles for the startup survival path, building A-plus teams, creating an evolving machine, setting up a need culture, or interpreting the true path for the fundraising. You can pre-order it from foundersfq.com and you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook.